You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the book of 2 Timothy. We're calling Resolute. With this week's message, here's education pastor Nolan Smith. Well, when I was in high school, I was a part of a program that connected high school students and, and uh, allowed them to mentor uh, elementary school students. And so I, I had a kid that I was mentoring this uh, senior year of high school named Javi. Javi was just the sweetest kid. He had this smile that would light up every time that I would go and pick him up from class. And, and so one of those days I, I, I picked him up. We went out to the playground and, and we were shooting the basketball around. And, and you have to understand something about me. I, I was like most high school kids, right? I was pretty sarcastic. And, uh, and, and when I was with my friends, we liked to make fun of each other. That was how we showed, showed love. That's how we related to each other, was, was with jabs and, and jokes about each other. And so I find the opportunity with Javi to do just that. And so Javi shoots a basketball at one point, misses a shot, bounces away. And, and I, I think it's a good idea to say, wow, I can't believe you're so bad at this. Yeah, it was a bad idea. So, so I, I follow the ball away, I go grab the ball, bring it back, and I come back to hand it to Javi, and I look at his face, and I can tell that Javi is not his usual, you know, happy self. And, and he has this, this blank look on his face. I say, Javi, what's wrong? And his, his stoicism gives way to, to heartbreak, and his face wells up, and the tears start to flow, and he goes, I'm sorry, I'm not bet- better at this. Oh, Man, you talk about one of the worst feelings that you can have is making an innocent kid cry because you made fun of him, right? God, I learned that day that there are good mentors. <laughs> and, and then, you know, there's me. And, and, and so, well, if we want to find an example of a good mentor, we can look to, to Paul. And Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, which is where we are today, if you want to turn in your copy of Scripture to 2 Timothy chapter 1. But we're continuing in this series where we're looking at, at Paul's words to Timothy, and, and Paul has, has been a mentor to Timothy. And as we'll see in that relationship, he's going to offer this encouragement to, to Timothy. He's going to call him to, to courage and to press on. He's going to encourage him in his calling and, and, and encourage t- Timothy to press on, carrying out the work of the Lord. And as we saw last week in our first section in this letter, we, we saw that, that Paul was talking about Timothy's faith and how he was raised with this faith by his mother and his grandmother, and he was affirming that. And, and, and he talked about his affection for, for Timothy, how, how he, he longed to see him again, and he wanted to see Timothy grow. And so we pick up his words in verse 8, where Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So there at the beginning of of this section, Paul says, Hey, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus. And I think it's important for us to talk about that concept of shame because I think the way that Timothy read that and understood that and the way that we might read and understand that is a little bit different. And so we have to understand the culture 
that Paul and Timothy lived in. We have to understand that, that ancient Rome, like many ancient cultures and even some modern cultures, was what we call an honor-shame culture. That means that, that strength is, is venerated, held up in honor. And then at the other end of that spectrum, weakness and weakness was something that you did not want people to see. You didn't want to be seen as weak because it was shameful. You'd, you'd find yourself at the bottom of the social ladder. And, and so if you, if you projected weakness out into the world, people, people didn't, they didn't commend that. They, they in fact said, well, I, what's wrong with you, right? It's a deficiency. Or they might see an opportunity to exploit you. And, and so you didn't want to project weakness out in the world. You, you would want to project strength because there was shame in weakness. And so... When you think then about when ancient Christians would say that our Lord, our King, the, the head of our church was beaten and mocked and scorned, that he was killed by Rome and he was handed over by his own people for that purpose. You hear all that and you think, man, that would be wildly shameful in the old world. And, and so when we try and, and imagine what it means to be ashamed of this, I don't think that resonates quite the same. Our culture doesn't work quite the same way. We don't have an honor-shame culture. So when we talk about weakness in our culture, it's not seen quite as, as taboo, as something that you need to hide from, that you need to hide your weakness from everyone else. And this is not to say that people don't struggle sometimes to open up about their weakness, but it is to say that we recognize virtue and vulnerability. That, that when, when, you are, when you're struggling with something, you'll be encouraged very often with, by somebody in your life to say, hey, why don't, you, why don't you open up and talk about that with somebody, right? Let, let somebody else in. Show your weakness. It's okay to have these weaknesses. We see virtue in that. We recognize, too, that, that people who are marginalized, who are victimized in, in our society are much more likely to be helped and lifted up, that, that society is going to come alongside those people, wants to help them. And so there are people then who, who have no problem talking about their weakness, talking about the ways that they're victimized, that they're exploited, because they recognize if I talk about this, people might help me. Whereas in the old world, they wouldn't have done that. They would have hidden that. They don't want to talk. It's not good to talk about. And it's interesting, actually, why that's the case. Why was ancient Roman culture and these other cultures, why, were they, why did they function that way? And why does ours function so differently? There's a, a man that's written extensively about this uh, by the name of Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, okay, not, not Spider-Man. No, this is a historian and an author named Tom Holland who's written uh, about this idea of how ancient, he talks about ancient kingdoms and cultures, and he's talked about the modern West and the development of the West. And, and this is what he had to say in a tweet uh, from a couple of years ago. He said, the notion that suffering and persecution might be a source of status is testimony to how fundamentally Christian even the most liberal reaches of America remain. And so what Holland's point is, he's saying that when you look at our culture and you recognize that, that difference between the ancient cultures, the honor cultures, and you look at ours and you go, why, why, why does modern, the modern West, why does America, why do we have a culture that's, that's not just okay with, with weakness, but we actually... We actually allow it, we, we encourage it, and people will sometimes identify with their weakness because there's some social status within that. They'll, society will lift them up. Why is that? And, and Holland says, it's actually because of Christianity. That for the past 2,000 years, Western culture has developed on these Christian principles to the extent that now our society is defined by shame actually being a, a virtue. I mean, not shame, weakness being a virtue, right? And, and so... 
Why is that important? Because Paul's words to Timothy, when Paul says to Timothy, hey, don't be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus, what Timothy is understanding is, hey, the people around me, society around me looks at Jesus in his weakness and says, why on earth would you follow that guy? He's weak. Why, why follow Christ? So Paul's telling Timothy, press on through that. Don't allow that to, to tempt you into shame and to turn from the gospel. But we don't hear it the same way. For us, it might, it might apply better if we said it this way. People in our world don't look at Jesus' weakness and his sacrifice and say, that's, that's bad. Like, you don't associate with that. No, Jesus' sacrifice is actually seen, I think, by even non-Christians as, as pretty virtuous. So what is it about Jesus that might make our culture see that as shameful? I think it's actually not Jesus' weakness, but what he calls us to do, self-sacrifice, to lay down our desires in pursuit of him. That I think that the world looks at a Jesus who would say, not all of your innate desires are good. That there, you have some desires that are not good, that actually if you pursue them, they will lead you towards death. And we live in a world that's saying, no, no, you should pursue your desires. Those desires are who you are. Don't turn from that. that that's your identity. It, embrace them. And that's not what Jesus says about us, about our desires. And so the world then around us looks at Jesus and says, why would you associate with, with somebody who's so hateful of, of who I am and my desires? And so I think for us, Paul's warning not to be ashamed of the testimony of Christ, I think that's more how, how it would apply. And within that, we recognize that there's a social cost. Paul says, I want you to share in my suffering, which doesn't sound fun, but it points to the reality that following Jesus will have a cost in this world. We'll talk more about suffering in a minute, which I know is a hook that just keeps you in. You're like, I can't wait to talk about suffering. But we're gonna keep going. Uh, what is the basis of this suffering? Paul says it's the, it's the gospel. He says that not because of our works, but because of his own purpose. What Paul's saying is we weren't saved by our own merits. We weren't saved because of what we did. We were saved because God has a purpose for us. And, and so we're not saved for our purposes. We get to do more of what we want to do. We're saved so that we can join in God's purpose and what he's doing. And so God doesn't look at us as we are in our sin or we're, we're living our lives, we're going about our way. God doesn't grab hold of us, clean us up and say, okay, now you're clean. Get back right to what, whatever it was you were doing. Go ahead, keep going. God God, when he gets hold of us and he cleanses us, he's gonna say, now I want you to follow me. And we see this example in John chapter eight. Jesus defends this woman who's caught in adultery. And there are these people around her who want to stone her. They wanna take advantage of the opportunity to condemn her in her sin. And, and Jesus turns the mirror on them and he talks about how, how they have sinned too. And, and eventually they all turn away and leave. And then he looks at her. And what he says to her is, go and sin no more. Jesus first redeems her, and then he redirects her. Jesus gives a new identity, and he gives a new purpose. And we, we, we have to be, uh, we have to recognize that sometimes as Christians, we'll hear that, we'll say, okay, Jesus saved me, so now I'm, I'm good, I'm, I'm saying, I know I'm going to heaven when I die, so I'm, I'm safe, so I can just keep doing whatever I want, right? And, and we, we see the temptation to do that, but, it, it, and while it's true, once you are saved, you are always saved, right? That, that is a permanent thing, once and forever. You're sealed in him. But you're saved for so much more than that. 
God does not want to, to redeem you just so that you can get back to whatever you're doing. He wants to redeem you so that you can join in what he's doing in the world. And, and Paul says this gospel is manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. He says, you want to see the gospel? You want to see grace? The picture of it? It's Jesus. It's his life, death, and resurrection. Because in the very beginning, God created mankind. He gave mankind the choice. He said, hey, you can follow me. You can trust me. Live according to my design for you. Or you can go your own way. You can come up with your own design. You can do that. And in the very beginning, that's what man did. He said, yep, that's what I want to do. I want to go my own way. But that disobedience, that decision to go away from God fractured that relationship between God and creation. And as a result, sin enters into the world and pervades. It, it gets into everything. It infects our entire world. And so when we are born, we're born into a broken world. And so it's not unlike a, a child who's born in a prison cell where we wouldn't say that, that the child is born and so they're, they're condemned to prison for their guilt. So, so when a, a child is born in sin, we don't say God condemns the child to hell because they're guilty of sin but they're born into that condition of brokenness. And what the child who's born there has in common with the person who was sent there because of his own actions, what they have in common is that neither of them can get out on their own. That they are both stuck in a situation that they cannot resolve themselves. And so Jesus looks down at us in our condition, our brokenness, and he says, you can't get to me, so I, I will come to you. I will step into creation. I will come to you in your suffering. I will empathize with your suffering. And, and Jesus came and he identified with us in our brokenness all the way to the cross where he bore our sin, all the way to the grave where he beat death for us. And that is what Jesus did. If you want to experience a restored relationship, if you don't want to, to live in the brokenness, where, where that, is, that is your reality, if you, don't wanna, if you don't wanna stay there, all you have to do to experience that redemption, that restored relationship with your creator is to just trust that that's what Jesus did for you. It's so simple, you could do that right now where you're sitting. But that is the gospel and Jesus is the manifestation of grace, the perfect picture of grace. Paul continues in verse 11, this gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. You know, thinking again of how we are saved for something. I think God, when he saves us for a purpose, I think that idea of purpose works on a couple of levels. I think first it works on a people level, like a universal level, that all people who are saved, everyone who is in Christ is saved for the same purpose. And that purpose is to be brought back into relationship with, with God, to be restored to our creator. So that when we are saved, we are saved first and foremost so that we can have a relationship with God. But there's another level to that purpose. God saves everyone for another purpose at, a, at an individual personal level. He saves each and every one of us who are in Christ for unique purposes that he made only you or only me for. That, that when God redeems us, he redeems our souls, he redeems every part of our personality. Every, everything within us, our strengths, our gifts, he redeems it all 
so that he can now use us for his redemption plan. So as he draws people to himself, that's what he wants to do. God wants to draw all people to himself and bring them into that relationship. And so when he redeems us, he redeems us for that, but then he redeems our individual unique personalities and gifts so that he'll turn us back out to do that work with him, to continue drawing people to himself. God redeemed Paul, which means that Paul was first and foremost restored for right relationship with God. That was, that was the first reason that God redeemed Paul was so that he could have that relationship. But if you know anything about Paul, you know that, that he was a religious leader long before he met Jesus. He was a Pharisee who persecuted and killed Christians. And so God, when he, when he redeemed Paul, he redeemed all of those things about Paul, his gifts, his interests, his passion for teaching and leading, all of those things he turned now to use for his good. And he turned Paul into an apostle and a teacher of the gospel. So God had a specific purpose and calling for him. He has a specific purpose and calling for you as well. And I don't mean there's just like one narrow like lifestyle choice or career path that you have to take or else you're not living out that calling. It just means that whatever those unique things about who you are, whatever those unique things are within your personality, your strengths, the relationships that only you have, whatever they are, God wants to use those for his plan of redemption. And we see in Paul's situation that this calling is not without risk, that there is suffering even in obedience. Sometimes they're suffering because of our obedience. And God doesn't promise us a life free of pain. In fact, I would submit that suffering is not something to be avoided. Suffering is something to be redeemed. And I think we have to change the way that we think about suffering to get there. Because most Christians, most Christians, we, we recognize that around us, there is a world that has, has done a great job at mitigating pain, right? Advancements in technology and medicine and everything else. We, we live in a world where we've been, able to, we've been able to minimize and mitigate pain, bring it down lower and lower. And, and, and so we start to get this idea in our heads that maybe, maybe that trajectory just keeps getting closer and closer to zero, that maybe we can hope to have a life completely free of pain. But we know just looking at our own lives, that's not the case. I'd imagine that when I mention suffering, that there are some very real, maybe very present circumstances and emotions that come to your mind. So maybe for you, suffering is you've moved to a new city, you don't know anybody, you feel really isolated, you haven't met your, your people yet. Maybe for you, suffering is, is a strained relationship. Maybe there's somebody in your life you used to be close with and you're not anymore, you don't talk, and you miss that relationship. Maybe suffering is a constant state of mental darkness and, and loneliness. Maybe suffering is disease and declining health. Maybe it's the loss of somebody that you love. Maybe it's a combination of a lot of those things. Suffering, though, is real. And we, we recognize we can't, we can't escape it. It's a consequence of the fall. It's a reality of a broken world. And as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, we should not expect to find total comfort in this world. But despite the reality of suffering, Paul is able to endure. And it's because he has this hope of future glory that as believers, our hope is not in the absence of pain. 
That is not our hope. Our hope is not that we could live all life without experiencing pain. Our hope is in the redemption of our pain. And so we, we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus, you, you can take this and make it mean something good. And on this side of glory, we may not ever learn what our pain is for. We may not get to, but I will tell you this, that I personally, very often in my in my pain and my suffering, whether it's, whether it's fear and anxiety, where I, I'm just, I can feel the anxiety in my physical body, like, like I, I, I get sick with anxiety or, or whatever I might be struggling with, I will tell you that I am very often comforted with this image I have in my mind. And it's, it's me standing next to Jesus and Jesus with his arm around my shoulder. And we turn and we look back at my life and I see all of the, the, the instances, the seasons where I was suffering. And I see it, I look at it and I say, that was so hard. That was, was so painful at the time. But, but when I look at it from here, I see that it had a purpose. And it was good. And God redeems our pain. Paul continues in verse 13, he says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul has been a mentor to Timothy and he's so confident in his example as a mentor that he says, hey, keep going, keep remembering the example that I gave you and keep following that. And it's not because Paul is just so, so arrogant and proud of himself, I'm really good at this, so keep doing what I did. I don't think Paul's confidence is in his own goodness. I think it's because he knows this whole time he's been following Jesus. And so for Paul to say, hey, keep doing what I did, he's really pointing Timothy straight to Jesus. And so Paul tells Timothy to guard what was entrusted to him. Paul looked into Timothy's life and he saw who Timothy was. He saw these unique aspects to his personality, his gifts, and he invested in him. He tried to bring those things out and help Timothy recognize them himself so that he could use those in the work of the gospel. And Paul's words mattered. They were what he said, sound, which I think was saturated with God's word. I think that, that Paul was careful and he was intentional every time he had the chance to talk to Timothy or to write to Timothy. I think, I think he knew that his words carried weight. And so he was very careful and calculated with how he spoke to him building Timothy up. And I think it's important that Paul points to the source by which Timothy will be able to do this. It's the Holy Spirit. That, that we have a calling and it's, it's not easy to live out the calling that God gives us, to follow in obedience to him. It's not easy and we can't do it on our own. We cannot do it by our own efforts. If all we do is think, God, I'm gonna be better today than I was yesterday, I I will do this, God. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you proud. I'm gonna, I'm gonna work harder today. I'm gonna sin less today. That's what I'm gonna do. If we do that, we'll find ourselves struggling and failing time and again. Because as Paul says in Romans, five, or excuse me, Romans 8, beginning in verse five, he says, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Paul's saying, Timothy, you're not gonna get there. You are not going to be able to live out this calling if you're constantly trying to do it yourself. If your mind is set on the flesh, your own ability, you're gonna fail. So what you need to do is set your mind on the spirit. 
Look to God. Direct your attention to his word. Direct your attention to the spirit of God and your life will follow after. You will be able to live out this calling as a simple consequence of focusing your mind on the spirit, focusing your attention on God. Verse 15, he continues, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and he found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service that he rendered at Ephesus. See, these principles and these warnings that Paul was giving Timothy, they had real world consequences. That to follow them or, or, or to not follow them, it had consequences. He offers examples of people who gave in to that shame who felt the, ten- the, the, the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. And they gave in and, and they ended up abandoning Paul. And I think James's words in James chapter two, where he's describing the consequences of a Christian who has faith, but doesn't put that faith to action. He says this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So while we don't know the specific circumstances, it seems like Paul needed help. He needed help from fellow believers, and and Phygelus and Hermogenes, they didn't offer it. And Paul didn't get the help that he needed. So what good was their faith? And it's important to note in this passage, because I think this is a passage that gets a lot of us hung up sometimes, where where James says that a faith without works is dead. So it's easy to read that and go, oh, so so it sounds like then Phygelus and Hermogenes and anybody else like this who doesn't put their faith to work, it means they're not actually Christians. Like they're they if they didn't if they didn't help somebody, and 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 James can say that that their faith is is dead, then he's saying that you don't you're not Christian unless you do these things. And I would push back on that, okay? James is writing to believers. We know that. That means he assumes everybody in his audience is already a Christian. They're going through trials. And so what James does, he says, hey, I'm, I'm gonna give you some instruction that are gonna help you endure trials. And one of those tri- among those trials is the temptation to abandon your faith because of the pressure you're gonna feel in, in the, the Roman, it's called the diaspora. It's when they sent all the Jews out of their homeland and these Christian Jews are suffering in exile because of their faith. And as a result, James is saying, here's how you endure and recognize that when you abandon your faith or you don't live it out, it has consequences. It has consequences for you. What good is your faith? And it has consequences for those around you. It's not helping them either. So it's not a note to say, that you're not a Christian if you don't do this, that you're not actually going to heaven if you don't do this. It's not what he's saying, but he's pointing out, and we see it right here in Paul's example, what it looks like when you don't live out your faith. But conversely, Onesiphorus provided a positive example of faithfulness and obedience. He didn't give in to the shame or the fear. He pressed on to continue serving the Lord and then ends up serving Paul in the process. And what a legacy he now has. He's the guy forever in the Bible who was the one that helped Paul, right? What a legacy that is. Paul writes this letter to Timothy offering this encouragement. And and I think for us, there's a lot that we can can take from this letter as well. 
I think there's some important questions that it raises in each of our lives. I think number one is this, how do you feel the temptation of shame? What does that look like for you? We talked about the difference between how Timothy understood shame and the temptation towards that and how we probably do too. That you, you, when you leave this church, you'll go out into a world, whether it's at your job or your school, or it's among other friends and other relationships that you have, you'll go out into a world that's gonna look at Jesus and say, you follow that guy? He, he seems so hateful because he condemns the things that I wanna do the things that make me who I am, and you follow him? And they'll tell us that we don't have enough compassion. But here's the trick that they, that the devil is playing on us. They redefine compassion and love. They tell us that it's compassionate to affirm our desires. It's compassionate to tell somebody that whatever their, their desires are, they should do that. It'll make them happy. That's compassion. And when we because we follow Jesus, don't, don't affirm that, we lack compassion. And then we feel the temptation towards that shame and we start to give in. Oh, you're right. Well, I don't wanna be, I don't wanna be dispassionate. I don't, I don't, I don't want to, to be hateful. So yeah, you're right, I'll, I'll do that. And we start to give in because we're ashamed of the testimony of Jesus. And this is a call from Paul in our own lives, in our own world. Don't do that. Don't give in to the shame. Hold fast to the gospel holds fast to the, to the message where Jesus calls us out of our sin. He calls us to something more. He calls us to lay down those desires and follow him. Second, what is your calling? What is your calling? Again, we all, when we are, when we are redeemed, we are brought into that relationship with Jesus. That is first and foremost the purpose for God bringing us to himself is just to restore relationship. So that's true of all of us if we're in Christ. But we also have these unique gifts. These things, these, these circumstances, these relationships, where we live, who we interact with, these are all things that are unique to you. And God wants to take all of those things and redeem them and use them for his purpose. Because he wants to draw all of those people around you to himself as well. And so he wants to use you in that work. You know, I work with uh, students, I work with, particularly with college students, and I'm often around young people who are wondering, what is my calling? What, what am I supposed to do? And I think one of the best ways to understand our calling is to look for the places where our gifts and our passions fall within God's commands and his design. Where do your gifts and your passions fall in line with God's commands? You know, just about any good sports movie is gonna have this token storyline where there is this guy or this girl who's like this, this wild card, this rogue, and the coach is going to recognize some gift or skill that they have. But he's only gonna see it because he sees it outside the context of the game. Maybe it's, maybe it's he knows they're fast because he saw them run away from the police, right? Or he knows they're strong because he saw them stand up and punch out a bully or something like that. And outside of the context of the game that he coaches, those skills don't mean much to him. But what he does is he looks at them and he says, if I can take that and I can bring it into the context of the game, and then I can harness it and I can unleash it in, in the game, on the court, on the field, then they'll be great, right? And that's what God wants to do with us, that we all have gifts, we all have passions. And outside of the context of God's design and his commands, those gifts and those passions, they don't mean a whole lot. They don't get us anywhere. But if we take those and we let God redeem them, we say, God, I'm, I'm gonna take that. You've redeemed all of me. So I'm gonna take these things and I'm gonna give them to you and I'm gonna use them within the context of how you designed me 
I'm gonna use these in the context of your commands. That's what God wants to do with us. And then finally, I would ask this question. Who disciples you? Who disciples you? Because Paul's relationship with Timothy highlights an important truth about the human condition. It's that we're made for a relationship. And within that, we need relationship with, with somebody that knows us, can look at us, know who we are, know the things about us, see our uniqueness, our gifts, and our passions. They can see those things. They can affirm them. And then they can encourage us to use those for God's purposes. They can affirm us in our calling, our unique calling that God has given us. Somebody who knows us well and will cheer us on to live the way that God designed us. And if you're here and you're thinking, man, I'd, I'd love to find that. I'd love to find somebody like that, but I don't, I don't know how. Well, first I would say you can connect with a community group. You can reach out to Caleb Carmichael on our staff and he'd love to help you find a, a community group. Or if, if you're interested in an ABF, one of these Sunday morning classes that we have at 9.30 here on campus every Sunday morning, or, or, or one of our Wednesday night classes, then I'd love to talk to you about that, help you find a class that you might be able to join. Amy Berry, our women's director, and, and Joe Cook, our, our pastor who's in charge of the men's ministry, they'd love to help you find a Bible study to get into. And in those places, you'll be around, in a, in a, in a closer setting, you'll be around fellow believers, fellow members of the church body where you, you can join with, with them and, and, and build those relationships. And you might be able to identify somebody who can do that, who, who shares your faith, but they're maybe a little further along. They have wisdom that they can speak into your life. They can see you, get to know you and recognize those gifts and those, those passions within you and help you live the way that God has called you. I think furthermore, we can all be that person for somebody else. I think it's worth asking, are there people in my life that I can be that for them, that I can mentor them, I can disciple them. I can be the person that gets to know them and recognizes those things about them and then encourages them, teaches them how to use those things. And so we can find opportunities for that as well. Paul writes this letter to Timothy, encouraging him not to give in to the shame, to recognize that there's a world that's hostile to our faith that will tell us we shouldn't follow Jesus. And Paul says, press on through that. Keep going, keep following Jesus because there's life in a relationship with him. That he's called us first and foremost for that restored relationship, but also to a calling that only you can have because you are you and God wants to take those unique things about you and harness them and use them within the context of living out his will and his commands. And so we press on and we continue to do that as Paul has called Timothy and as he calls us to do. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.